Well, good morning, church. Good morning. What an honor it is to speak before you, to read out of God's Word. And if there's any doubt that this is God's Word, let me share a, or give you a scenario. What if I had a letter written by George Washington, our very first president, that described in perfect detail our current administration? Well, you would think, wow, that's incredible. Now let me take it a step further. What if I showed you a letter written by Columbus who sailed the ocean blue in 1492? Well, now at this point, you would, you would think, that's insane, or Columbus is a prophet. But did you know that the prophet Isaiah recorded the birth of a king over 700 years before he came onto the scene? In our text today, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, we are given a perfect description of a child that would become the king of an eternal kingdom. This is our first message as we begin our season of Advent. Now this word Advent comes from a Greek word that means coming or arrival. Therefore, we will be discussing the Advent of the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus Christ as we celebrate His first coming on Christmas Day. So we're going to read this passage as a whole, and then I'll pray and we'll begin to break it down. Okay? Now, do we stand? Stand for the reading of the word? Yeah, I, yeah we can now. If you would please rise. <laughs> now, if you would look at me starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in, the, in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you for what you've done and what you've revealed in your Word, I ask you to open our eyes, open our minds and our hearts 
to what you would have us see. Let it not be my word today, but yours. Holy Spirit, we invite you in to this message. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Maybe seated. <laughs> so now, in the ESV translation of your Bible, you may see, notice at the beginning of the section, it says, For to us a child is born. In the NKJV translation, the section is titled, The Government of the Promised Son. And in the CSB translation, the title reads, Birth of the Prince of Peace. Now, none of these section titles are divinely inspired. That's why they all say a little bit of a different thing. But they capture the main idea of this passage, which is that God has fulfilled His promise to send a Son who would grow to reign over a universal, eternal kingdom. God has fulfilled His promise to send a son who would grow to reign over a universal, eternal kingdom. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the prophet wrote this, gave this prophecy over 700 years before Jesus was born. So when this prophecy came, it's not like he was speaking to Christians or to people who could have ever imagined what this would look like. So if you would turn a chapter back to Isaiah chapter 8, the prophet warns of a coming invasion by the Assyrians that's going to bring death, destruction, and turmoil to the people. But God, towards the middle of chapter 8, lets them know that even though there will be great turmoil and destruction, He will never let His people be completely destroyed. There will be a way of salvation. So this pattern of destruction and turmoil and devastation and a way out is seen throughout the whole of the Bible. It was seen when God demonstrated His mercy by saving Noah and his family on the ark all the way through the New Testament where in our darkness He has made a way through Jesus Christ. But in the context from which our prophet Isaiah is delivering this message, he is speaking to a people who are living without a knowledge of Jesus. To people who are familiar with war, anguish, and darkness as we all are, but without Jesus. So, understanding the darkness and the lack of hope these people may be feeling, we have a greater appreciation for the light and hope found within our message today. If you would notice that from the beginning of chapter 9, he has an entirely different tone. In the first two verses of Isaiah 9, he, he proclaims a coming light in an unlikely place. If you would read verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So in verse 1, he mentions 
these, the, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. And admittedly, sometimes we approach these, we get these names of places in the Bible and we just kind of dismiss them. They're so many thousands of years old in a completely different culture and we may be tempted to read past them. But the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali are also seen in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Just after the devil had finished tempting Jesus, Jesus begins his ministry. So if you would look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, it says that Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And where does it say he was? In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now these territories of Zebulun and Naphtali were in the far northern part of Israel. If you ever see Israel on a map, you got Jerusalem down here where in that time God was. And up here you had the Gentile nations and there was constant war and destruction as they would pass through the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But notice Isaiah's declaration of a coming light in verse 2 of our passage. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, I realize that the, this passage that I'm preaching from today is about the advent, the arrival of the coming Son who would establish an eternal kingdom. But imagine it like a good movie, right? If it started with the hero declaring victory and a people rejoicing, well, you would want to know what happened. What led up to this? What was the situation? We want more of the story. And in the first two verses of our passage today, we already have been given an incredible prophecy of Jesus coming as a great light, beginning his ministry in a land of darkness. That's not something that we should just read past, ignore, or diminish. I mean, that's good news, knowing that regardless of how dark a place appears, He can reach all people anywhere. Regardless of how deep of darkness we were once in, His light can still shine upon us. But the prophet continues in verses 3 and 4, continues to build the anticipation of what is to come by continuing to paint this picture for the audience of beauty. So starting in verse 3, we read, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So in those first two verses of our passage, we are given a beautiful picture of a nation increasing, a people rejoicing, because the rod of the oppressor will be broken as in the day of Midian. Now, those of you who might be fans of action-filled biblical narratives might know that the prophet in verse 4 of our passage is referencing a delivery from the Midianites by Gideon in the book of Judges. 
Now Gideon is an Old Testament judge, not in the sense that he had a gavel or that's what like a gavel and a coat. He's not a judge like that. He's a judge in the sense that he knew how to throw down. Judges in the Old Testament were raised up to deliver Israel from uh, its enemies and oppressors used by God. And one of the greatest judges used by God was a man named Gideon. Now we hear a lot about Samson and Deborah, and that's good because they're judges too, and people still name their kids Samson and Deborah, but I haven't met a Gideon, you know. Someone might know him, but it's not a popular name, but it should be. And that's a shame because God used Gideon to do incredible things. Gideon was obedient even when humanly it may not have been easy for him. You see, in Judges 7, we get an account of Gideon's defeat of the Midianites. But what was unique about Gideon's defeat of the Midianites? Well, Gideon had come with an army of 32,000 Israelites to fight against a huge Midianite army of 135,000. Then the Lord commanded Gideon to reduce his army to only 300 men. Now, I spent a few years in the army, and I wasn't the greatest tactician. I, I, I don't profess to be a general or anything like that. But if I was going into battle against a force four times the size of mine, you know, I'd say, call in reinforcements. We need air support. We need more help. Bring us more people. But if you read in verse 2 of Judges chapter 7, we see what the Lord told Gideon. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You see, God throughout Scripture wants to make it clear that we cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior. Which is why in our passage today, Isaiah announces to them the coming of a child who will be that Savior, who will establish an eternal kingdom on earth when He comes. Now, here we are, the climax of the passage. In verse 6, the hero comes on to the scene. So let's just read verses 6 and 7. Starting in verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, from our 21st century American perspective, we may who have heard Bible stories since we were born, we may hear that passage and just shoot up an amen, as we should, because this is clearly a prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus' first coming as the Messiah, as the King. 
But I want you to understand the magnitude of the prophet Isaiah delivering this prophecy. I mean, really think about it. Forget the fact that this was fulfilled 700 years after it was given. Man wouldn't ever think to make up a story or to create a religion that involved their God, God Almighty, humbling himself to be born as a child, to come as a son, to live as a man, and then to be tortured, beaten, and hung on a cross for the people he came to save. Loved ones, this prophecy from Isaiah that for to us a child is born, a son is given, is the greatest news the universe has ever received because the son is the greatest gift humanity has ever been given. But in the context of our passage, a child being born, a son being given, would probably be a bit confusing to the people listening to Isaiah. Remember, he's not talking to Christians at the time. He's talking to people who have no idea who this son could be. So, Isaiah in verse 6 of our passage gives four titles to describe the coming son that we know as Jesus. Let's take a look at these titles and discuss each of them in greater detail. First, we see Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Now, we hear that in English, and we're tempted to think, okay, well, Jesus is in a counseling room, and we're on the couch, and we're venting to him about our problems, this and that. But Wonderful in Hebrew comes with a different connotation. It, it means somebody who is meant to invoke awe and wonder. It, we can't comprehend how wonderful he is. And the second part of the title is counselor, which is, again, a word that means something a bit different in their context. In ancient Israel, a counselor was portrayed as an exceptionally wise king, maybe such as Solomon. So when we think of philosophers and wise people throughout ancient history, many of us might point to Aristotle, Socrates, uh, Plato. But the greatest philosopher of all time who has ever lived is Jesus. He understands the human condition better than anyone who has ever and will ever live. And what is my support for this? Well, the Bible, whether you believe it's true or not, has been, without a doubt, the most influential book of all time. Friends, the Word of God has transformed individuals, families, and nations across continents throughout history. And today we have the privilege to go to God's Word with our concerns, anxieties, and troubles because He is truly a wonderful counselor and this Word is sufficient for all things in life. But He is far more than that. The next title He gives is Mighty God. Jesus is our Mighty God. One of the primary characteristics of Christian cults is the denial of Jesus' divinity. I mean, many other religions might even say Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was the first created being. 
But once you mention and you say that Jesus is God, well, then things take a turn. But listen to what Jesus said about himself in John chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Then Philip, still not really understanding, says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. So in this passage, we see that the Father and the Son are equal. Jesus, the Son, is God, but He is not the Father. Likewise, the Father is God, but He is not the Son. So too is the Holy Spirit God, but He is, nor, he is not the Father or the Son. We serve a triune God who is three in one. Amen? <laughs> so... But there are some who argue against the core doctrine of the Trinity. And one text that they point to is his next title, which is Everlasting Father. But this title isn't an argument against the Trinity. In this instance, Jesus is the Everlasting Father in the sense that he helped create all things. The Hebrew phrase everlasting father can be translated as father of eternity. So he helped create everything. And a passage that supports this is John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, many rulers in ancient times were considered the father of their country because they helped form it. So think of it like in America. We have our founding fathers. But unlike the fathers of nations, Jesus is the father of an everlasting kingdom. And unlike any current or former world leader, he can bring peace to the world because he is the Prince of Peace, which is our final title. Now, of the titles, this one, in my opinion, is one of the greatest. By accepting Jesus, you can have peace beyond all understanding. But this peace is not because once you accept Jesus, you'll get a fancy car or you'll get a, a, a big house and not because you'll get that career that you've been searching for. And it's not even because you'll never face pain in life again. But he'll give you peace because in the suffering, in the persecution, in the trials of life, you can have peace knowing that even if you die, you will be raised as he was raised. 
Because he suffered on the cross and took on God's wrath upon himself, you no longer have to. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we all know he suffered. You see, accepting Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sin is the way that you can have that blessed assurance, that peace when suffering comes. I mean, a personal example of mine is every six months, I have to lay in an MRI machine as I scan my spine and my brain for a recurrence of cancer. But I have peace because my Savior Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Now, we can look at now, as we look at the final verse of our passage, we see the Son, who is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, is also going to be our King of Kings. And his kingdom of justice and righteousness will have no end. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now there's a couple of things that I just want you to catch out of that last verse. The first thing to catch is the prophet said the increase of his government and of his peace will have no end. Therefore, we as Christians can rejoice and recognize that Jesus has won the battle. When he said it is finished, he meant it is finished. The bondage that we once had to anxiety, fear, depression, and whatever else it might be that has broken our peace has been restored because he is now on the throne and will be forever. And the second thing to catch is that he will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore. Again, just going back to the context, the Isaiah says from this time forth, he is speaking to a future time which for us happened 2,000 years ago. So his son has already established his kingdom on earth and that we, you and I, have the privilege to be a part of. So even though we may see news and we may hear about this war or that war and how this country is collapsing or this and that, we see this turmoil, chaos, we can have peace knowing that our king is still on the throne right now. Now in closing, there's two ways that I want us to respond in light of what we've heard this morning. First, as we see those beautiful nativity scenes popping up through our neighborhoods, let's not just look at them and think, oh, that's a nice nativity scene. That's, that's cool. I want us to remember that that baby in the manger represents not a pivotal point in history, but the pivotal moment in history when God, the God of the universe came in the person of Jesus to establish his kingdom on earth. And the second 
way that we can respond to what we've heard today is to take the time this Advent season to share the gospel. Now, just as the prophet Isaiah had a promise from God that a son would establish his kingdom in his first coming, we have a promise from God that he is going to come again. But we also know that when he comes again, he is going to judge the living and the dead. And it won't be good news to all people. Therefore, let's seek out opportunities throughout the week to share the gospel. And now the gospel is not walking and telling people, hey, remember, Jesus is the reason for the season. Or, hey, uh, don't forget to put Christ in Christmas. That is not the gospel. That is a nice thing to say, like, say it by all means. But that is not the gospel. You see, for the first 23 years of my life, I had heard someone tell me those things, and it didn't matter to me much because Jesus was a really good person and the central figure of the Christian faith, such as maybe Joseph Smith and Muhammad or Buddha. He was just a central figure. So the celebration of his arrival, the celebration of his advent, is something that we should be excited for and ready to tell people that Jesus died while we were yet sinners. Yeah, that Jesus died while we were yet sinners so we can have glory. That's good news. So I challenge you this season to get into a real discussion with someone about who Jesus is. You see, for example, you can go to a relative, a friend, a stranger, and whatever it is, you can say, Merry Christmas. You know, I hear the Christians, they, they always say, hey, Jesus is the reason for the season, and Jesus has a special impact on Christmas. What do you think about that? And if they've lived in America for any um, amount of time, especially here in God's country where there's a praying grandma and churches everywhere, they'll know that Christmas is when the church celebrates Jesus' birth. So then you can ask them, well, why is that important? Why was, tell me about it. And if they say anything aside from, well, that's the birth of my Lord and Savior, you have the opportunity to share the gospel with them, to let them know that he came to save them from their sin. So in response to what he has done, Pastor Jared will come up and we will continue our time of worship by taking the Lord's Supper together. But first, let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word and what you've done. As we go through this season of Advent, let us not get caught up in the busyness of this world, but keep our minds and our eyes fixed upon you in all things. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.